1: It's everywhere in abundance. If someone can gamify an element of cooking or save a failing restaurant from the brink or travel anywhere for the express purpose of consuming bizarre foods, we've filmed it and turned it into entertainment. But Chef's Table is a new genre. If you haven't watched season one, you should. It's portraiture instead of food porn, profile instead of competition. Each episode follows the life and trajectory of one well-known chef, Inevitably, it's a character who's taken the hard road to follow a passion, but they're all distinct versions of this arc, and each chef a varying degree of perfectionist. I'm Kenzie Wilbur. this is Burnt Toast, and since season two is about to come out, I sat down with director David Gelb to talk about his own degree of perfectionism, and his own arc. It all starts with a movie you may have heard of, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which came out in 2011, was his first full-length documentary. The conception of that film is a starting point for understanding his later work.
0: I had always loved to eat. You know, my dad and my mom both fed me really well, and they're very good cooks. And I kind of, um, over time, kind of put it together that, you know, I should make this film about sushi. I love to eat sushi. I'll make it my job to eat sushi. And I was making short films about a number of different characters um, and trying to figure out a way to combine them that maybe would be sort of this... Um, maybe five or six different sushi chefs, and you would see the differences between them, and you would learn all about the art of sushi. But I was finding that while the individual shorts were interesting, they I couldn't put them together in a way that was really exciting to me. And um, it was around that time, you know, I was traveling around Japan, I was trying to, you know, eat at different sushi places and trying to figure out who my characters would be, that I met um, Jiro Ono. Um, I was taken there by the food critic in the movie, Yamamoto-san, and I just realized that this movie really should be about one person. And through telling a character-driven story about this one guy, I could convey everything I wanted to about the art of sushi and and more, really, because um, I was really kind of taken by this whole idea of, you know, the shokunin, which is like a craftsman who devotes his entire life focusing on one thing. And then I was also really moved by kind of this father-son succession story. And so the movie really became more about the people in this in this restaurant than it was about the sushi itself. And I think that that's sort of the mandate of Chef's Table, which is that, you know, it's set in the world of food. It's about very inspiring chefs, but it's really about their journeys through their lives. It's really a human story. So it's much more about people than it is about food.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like portraiture mm-hmm. almost. So it, so it follows, like you said, sort of that same trajectory of someone – taking a harder road to follow a passion or to achieve whatever it is that they define as perfection. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that every episode needs to have this sort of arc in order to be successful?
0: I think that there are many different versions of that journey that people can take. Um, But I think that our characters, we, we select chefs that have visions that they've been following their whole life. And they're trying to do something that may not have been done before or something that may even be considered in their hometown to be blasphemous in cuisine, like Massimo Bottura, for example, who was at odds with Italian cuisine. You know, he loved Italian cuisine, then he wanted to change it and got a lot of pushback, and now he's celebrated in Italy. And I think that's true not only in food, but I think that in stories about people who swim upstream, who are trying to do something that hasn't been done before, and despite people telling them that it's impossible... They still find something within themselves. Something in their story gives them the strength to push through that and to realize this vision.
1: Right. So, are is it you're thirty three? Thirty two. Thirty two. Okay. So, to my point, even better. You're thirty two. You have a deal with Netflix. You have directed a very widely acclaimed food documentary. Do you see any of yourself in the chefs that you profile?
0: Um. Yeah. I mean, sort of. I mean, here's what we, what we see. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think, you know, I'm pretty early in my career, I think, um, compared to where a lot of these chefs are. And the chefs in our show are all in different places. Some of them are older and they've kind of made it. And some of them are kind of telling the first act of their story and there is a lot more to come. And we do that intentionally to have chefs that are different places in their lives. I would say I'm more like one of the younger ones, but the real, similarity that I find between myself and the other directors on the show is that it's a really a, a team effort. We, we we look at how the chefs work with their staff and how they kind of communicate their vision because they can't do it by themselves. And so um, we kind of see the chefs. The chefs are like directors, I think. And um, so we kind of see ourselves as similar in that way.
1: You deflected part of that question beautifully. <laughs> but I asked because I wanted to get at that idea of swimming upstream. Um, and doing something that's never been done before. And arguably, Chef's Table is something of that nature. Um, We haven't seen this kind of profile, in so many of them um, presented in this way. Um, Some people have called Chef's Table a reinvention of the cooking show. Do you agree with that?
0: Well, the experience of trying to get it made would make me believe that that may be true in some sense, because even going back to Jiro Dreams of Sushi... When I was trying, I, at first I was trying to do it with a real full crew and with a real full, you know, budget. And as the shooting went on, we managed to get some money to be able to complete the film. Um, but in the beginning, it was really something, you know, I was begging my parents and grandparents for money. Um, and I was using savings that I had made doing other odd jobs on film sets. Um, people told me this was going to be boring. You know, they said, you know, maybe this is a good short film film. But nobody was really willing to get behind it as this sort of um, story about this old man and, you know, his art and his philosophy. And so I just felt it in my gut that it would work and we just did it anyway.
1: Oh, well, I think probably people thought that in part because they were thinking of it as a cooking show. And I don't see it as that at all. Mm. I, I'd, I'd, In that sense, I'd be missing a lot of the cooking. Sure. I think it's mostly about art.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's about people. And that's what Jira was. And then we kind of discovered that while we were making it. and um, But when we were trying to then pitch Chef's Table, you know, we thought, okay, well, we made Jira Dreams of Sushi. This is a fairly popular film. And we just want to do more of these with different characters. And a lot of people, um, agents, um, people in production companies were saying that it was impossible to do a show like this because all food shows have to have a host. And um, it has to have instructional elements of cooking in them mm-hmm. because that's what was out there and that you couldn't do this show unless I could find a Bourdain or an Andrew Zimmern or somebody who would guide the audience through the stories. There's no way you can make this. The audience needs to have – they were telling me the audience needs to have a, a, a recurring character that they're familiar with or the show just can't – it just won't work.
1: I can't think of anything that would disrupt the feeling of your show more than putting a Bourdain or a Zimmern on set with these people. <laughs> it's just so opposite, I feel like, of what it tries to achieve.
0: Yeah, and I, and I, I really love Parts Unknown, and I love Bourdain's show. Yeah, they're and I great love Zimmern's shows. show also, I think they're really cool. Um, but we're just making something that's a little different, um, where we are actually having the chefs kind of tell their own stories, and we have some context added by a food critic or an expert that knows their food well, and their loved ones, the people closest to them. So, um it's just a different kind of format, and we're just lucky that Netflix kind of had the courage to believe in it.
1: So there is no host, so what are we not seeing? What's just off camera when we see the chef sitting at a table in their restaurant with a glass of wine? What does that look like
0: the most the single most important if I can back up just a little bit the single most important thing is the selection of the chef and finding the chefs that have very compelling stories to tell um, that are in the top of their field. That, um, are good at telling their stories and are good at communicating with the camera. And, um, at the same time are willing to give us the amount of time that we need to, to make these films. Um, you know, our shooting schedule is a little bit longer than, um, some of the other shows are. And so the chefs may not be, you know, used to having to give, you know, two weeks of their time, essentially. Um, they're still allowed to work and we encourage them to work because we have to film them working. Yeah. But, um, it's certainly a distraction. And every season we try to have chefs that – some chefs are really well-known, like Massimo Bottura, very famous. Um, Niki Nakayama, on the other hand, not so well-known. And the discovery is part of the exciting thing about them. So if it's a famous chef, we're trying to find things within their stories that are surprising. Um, but we also try to find chefs that um, are not very well-written about and um, deserve recognition. And so we, it's, it's fun to point a spotlight at them, <laughs> although um, it just takes more work on our end researching because – the stories aren't laid out.
1: Even though you research very heavily before you start your work, have you ever been surprised on set?
0: Oh, all the time. I mean, we're always surprised. And um, that's kind of the, the exciting thing about doing documentaries in general. We come in with a plan. Um, every day is somewhat mapped out, but we allow the flexibility to make changes on the fly as things happen.
1: Like what? Give me an example of?
0: Uh, so when we're filming, um, Filming the episode about Gagan Anand was really interesting. And there were a lot of surprises there because um, he doesn't have a book out. He's um, ranked number one in Asia by the San Pellegrino 50 best list. But there really haven't been that many in-depth articles about him. So we were really surprised at how... Important Thailand is to his kind of biographical story and stuff. Like, for example, we we I was really surprised to learn that right when the restaurant was about to open was right when there were all these protests and stuff going on in Thailand. And people were taking parts of his restaurant, which was still under construction and using them to create weapons to fight the police and stuff. And so, um, I just thought that was really interesting. And I didn't realize how much more time we really needed to spend in Thailand because I thought that most of his cooking, you know his cooking is is a hundred percent Indian. But his personal life is very much um, about Thailand. And so we kind of shifted our dates around a bit, and we tried to extend our time in Thailand and to do more there. And we also got to go to India with him, which India, which was amazing, and something that we really didn't know – exactly what we were going to be able to shoot there are times when you know it depends on the if we're going to shoot on this trolley it really depends on the mood of the train conductor if he's going to allow, allow yeah. the cameras on the train or not or if he's going to see us or not sure so um there's this sort of sense of kind of fun and adventure and gagan is a very kind of exciting and spontaneous guy and so there were lots of sudden left and right turns
1: mm-hmm. was there an episode that was a particular challenge to you um when maybe the surprises aren't so fun and adventurous
0: um, well, you know, every the chefs are all very busy and um, they have personal lives, and so they're already it's already a struggle. And this is kind of a theme of the show: is like what is what is the cost of pursuing greatness? Um, these chefs are already overburdened, and overencumbered, and then you have the film crew there, and we're telling them that the kitchen has to remain silent while we're shooting our interview there, and there are all kinds of things that actually make their lives more difficult. And uh, when we were shooting our um, Enrique uh, Olvera episode, he had some issues he had to take care of with his kids, and so suddenly, you know, we found ourselves down a day, and so we're behind, and, um, you know, it's no fault of the chef, because he can't control when, you know, his real life is calling, Um, but we always find ways to kind of bounce back, and actually, we were fortunate to be able to um, come to New York and film a bit at his restaurant here, Cosme, and that actually became a net positive because we were able to add another dimension to the episode. So um, we kind of roll with the punches.
1: Does the cinematography of each episode change based on the story you're trying to tell or what you're trying to evoke?
0: Yeah, I would say so. Um, we have certain kind of rules to keep the show feeling consistent. Again, we don't have a host. We want people to remember that they're watching the same mm-hmm. series. And so we have certain um, uh, photographic kind of, I guess, I don't want to say regulations, but sort of like guidelines um, you know, we shoot every episode on prime lenses. We, we really don't use zoom lenses and that allows for a more beautiful quality. It takes a little bit more time and it's more expensive, but that's kind of a lot. The, the, the lens selection is what gives us our kind of unique look um, in the show.
1: So there's a lot that goes into the cinematography to make the show look the way it does. And it's an aesthetic that's well-maintained throughout their seasons. The art direction actually looks like art. But he's loath to call what he does food porn.
0: Well, we don't really like to call it food porn. We like to call it more food romance. Because um, <laughs> we don't like to just show a bunch of like sexy food. With you no, take it out to dinner first? Yeah, with no story or context, you know. <laughs> and so um, our, our the way that we like to present the food is with some sort of emotional context. So we feature dishes that have a story behind them, um, that have to do with a pivotal moment in that chef's life. And so in that way, it's actually kind of more arousing because you have feelings for the food beyond just, you know, its appearance. And um, so I, I, I consider food porn to be a compliment, but at the same time, you know, I we don't just um, we don't just like show a bunch of stuff in front of the camera for no reason, really.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Tell me about France. There's a mini season coming out later this year, mm-hmm. and it's all about French chefs. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose to structure it that way?
0: Well, we didn't have any French chefs in the first season. And um, although many of our characters did go to France to train because it is sort of this pilgrimage that you kind of have to make if you're a cook. And the idea actually came from Netflix because they got a lot of feedback saying that, you know, we we people love the show in France, but they really wish that they were French chefs. And so we had this, we kind of jumped on the opportunity that, you know, Netflix is interested in doing, you know, more on France. And so we thought this is a great opportunity to choose four really interesting and four very different chefs um, in France um, that kind of represent different eras of eras of French cooking. And that take French cuisine, and they all kind of put a different spin on it. Mm -hmm. And so um, our story of um, Michel Toigreau goes all the way back to the days when Jean and Pierre Toigreau invented what was called Nouvelle Cuisine, um, became very famous for their salmon and searle, which um, defied French cooking because it had a kind of light sauce, and they only cooked the salmon halfway, so the inside of the salmon was very rare. And this was like sent shockwaves throughout France. And now our story is about his son who, even though it was called Nouvelle Cuisine, it's not new to him. And he's trying to push forward, even though everybody's still asking him for the salmon and sirloin.
1: I love that that's the thing that sort of shocks the culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people would send the, you know, French cuisine was actually extremely heavy back in the day. I mean, a normal sauce, you could stick a spoon in it and mm-hmm. it would just stand straight up. <laughs> um, there was no color, you know, it was all just very kind of like heavy and, you know, luxurious, but not particularly inspiring and not particularly focused on the flavor of the products themselves. It would just taste like the sauce usually.
1: Right. In that way, are there through lines in those French episodes because they're all rooted from more or less the same cooking history?
0: Sure. Well, I would say that a major through line is that a lot of the chefs, um, the way that Michel Troigreau was finally able to kind of break from his um, kind of being in the, I guess, the cage of the past, as he described it, was by traveling abroad, being inspired by cuisines in other places and then bringing them back, which is actually the same thing that his father did, but he's just doing it in a different way. Um, Alain Passard is a chef who was at the top of the f- game of french cuisine you know serving french classics with his own kind of spin on it you know serving lots and lots of meat but he suddenly kind of had this epiphany where he decided to reject meat and he changed his entire cuisine to vegetables which was considered kind of blasphemy and an, an insult to french cuisine and all of his customers who came there loving you know to get a côte de Boeuf suddenly couldn't get it anymore and it almost destroyed his business and he took this incredible risk just because he felt that it was what he had to do. Um, Adeline Retard has always loved Chinese food. She married a Chinese guy and the two of them opened this restaurant together that really infuses like the flavors of China and France in a really interesting way. Um, and then Alexandre Couillon does really interesting things with seafood in this kind of remote or almost isolated place where he really just harvests everything from his own kind of area on this island and it's an island that the road disappears underneath the, twi- the tide twice a day <laughs> um and so it's just kind of a, he's in this really interesting bubble and it's outside of paris um and so um and they're all in different places in their careers whereas you know Michel michelle comes from this long tradition mm-hmm. alain passard has been on the scene for a very long time and he kind of invented this whole farm to table thing the way that he developed his vegetables and um And then Adeline and Alexandre kind of represent a new guard that's kind of coming up.
1: So they're much different than you'd think. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about gender, because we can't not in this world. Mm. um, The first season had one female chef. The second Mm. has two. The third has two. And the French series has one, I believe, right? Um, What should we take from that?
0: Well, I mean, I I think that in our conversation, in our conversations with – with our, with our female chefs, they often bring up the fact that they don't want it to be like, you know, I'm, you're only featuring me because I'm a female. The token. You know? I'm a chef that is a woman, but that's not what defines me. And I think that that's our approach to their episodes. If you look at the world and the proportion of male to female chefs, it is overwhelmingly male. And that's a product of this kind of, I guess, the old world mentality Um, where, you know, women don't have the time to do it or whatever. There are a million reasons that these old guys give sometimes, um, guys that I won't mention by name, but people have reasons and they're not really legitimate reasons. And so um, we try to shine a spotlight on chefs who are not um, necessarily written about enough or that we think that kind of set good examples or can be inspiring to other chefs. And so I think it's important that we have all different types of chefs, and that includes chefs who happen to be female.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but they're on the show because they're brilliant chefs and not because they're female.
1: You've probably eaten at all of these places, right? Are, is the magic real?
0: Um, yeah. I mean, it's we. the show is born out of love. So we make we choose the chefs that we have a strong hunch that we're really, if we haven't had the chance to eat there before, we've talked to people that we know and trust that really love the food there and um you know i have a real reverence for chefs and i love to eat and so the magic what we put on the screen is 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 what we're feeling when we're there and we're eating
1: it and I, and i think that you and your team have done a really good job of of teaching something about a character or profile um That's valuable even if you can never eat there, but I'm curious if you see that this format extending into other genres of food, maybe ones that happen to be more accessible.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that's a necessity um, because we can't just keep kind of telling the same stories about, you know, that they use the absolute best, most expensive ingredients and it's a 20-course tasting thing. Because if every chef that we're featuring is a 20-course tasting meal, then it just kind of becomes, it's no longer, that's no longer an exciting revelation. So. For that fourth season, we're looking at Ivan Ramen with Ivan Orkin, and I was just okay. with him in Japan, and we shot with him in New York. And his story is just absolutely incredible and inspiring. About a basically the sh- the nutshell version of it is, you know, it's a it's a Jewish guy from Long Island who climbed to the top of the ramen game mm-hmm. in Tokyo. But Ivan's food, you it's twenty, you know, for twenty dollars you get a full meal, and that's awesome. And when back when he was in Tokyo, it was. because that's just what ramen costs in Tokyo. We're also um, going to be... I'm actually going to be leaving for Korea to film uh, Jung kwan who uh, had this great article about her in the New York Times Magazine called The Philosopher Chef. And um, her cuisine, which is really just kind of born of these kind of wild gardens that are around the monastery um, and using fermentation and things like that, is definitely not in it for any kind of business sensibility whatsoever. And, you know, temple food is an entire different genre of food that people really don't know about. And I don't really know that much about, and we're researching it now. And so that'll be a really fun kind of adventure. But again, trying to get away from the idea that, you know, our restaurants can only be visited by the super
1: mm-hmm. rich. Yeah, it's a good evol- evolution in in a lot of ways, that being one of them. But also just, you know, the definition of what that pursuit of perfection is changes so much. Um, and maybe it becomes more relatable to some. Maybe it's not, but it's still just as compelling. Mm-hmm. Um I'm interested. Um, what do we watch first in season two? Because these – you don't have to watch them in order. They're episodic, but they're not – they don't build on each other. What do we watch first?
0: Well, yes. They're, they Each one can be watched independently. So it is totally possible to watch it in any order. Um, so we begin um, season two with Grant Achatz, who um, has – you know, is a very well-known chef but has an incredible story. And it's kind of amazing to – hear um, him tell it, you know, from his own perspective. And then his food is just incredibly visual and amazing looking. And um, so we open with him, and then we go to Alex Atala, who does an entirely different kind of cuisine, and he's in South America, and we go to the rainforest with him, and he finds all these different kind of indigenous um, ingredients, and he kind of built his cuisine, kind of trying to build a national Brazilian cuisine. There's a theme in this season about how um, some of the chefs, particularly... Enrique Olvera, uh, Gagan, Anna Rose, um, and Alex Atala all feel like their cuisines are somewhat disrespected. Um, Anna Rose, being from Slovenia, I mean, very few people have been to Slovenia, let alone know what the food is like there. Um,
1: yeah, what is Slovenian food? And I love that episode because she doesn't even cook it at first.
0: Right. Because she doesn't think that anybody will understand it. Correct. Right, right. And then it
1: doesn't, it's not until she gets back to understanding what her culture's food really is mm-hmm. and how to play with it and how to use it that she becomes successful yeah. in her own eyes and also in the eyes of her family, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. Um, and so there's a real kind of pattern in this where a lot of these chefs, they want to be great cooks. And so they go abroad and they – or they look outside of their own country and they start – then they're making things that are – delicious and they're learning how to cook but they're not making things that are really true to themselves and so um, gagan is hell-bent on proving that indian food is completely misunderstood and that it can be great and it can be a high quality cuisine um because he you know he breaks down just basically the whole misconception about curry and how curry is essentially a british word for anything saucy and um that indian food is completely misunderstood the same with um, alex atala trying to elevate brazilian food and that brazilians much prefer to go to a french restaurant or an italian restaurant than going to a brazilian restaurant
1: yeah there's a lot to unpack there in that you know what we think of as being high cuisine is something that we can't get outside of our own door that only the imported things are the fancy things and that goes back so far
0: sure um especially also enrique olvera you know where mexican food is um i mean you can only it's hard to name like very expensive mexican restaurants
1: yeah mexican food has a whole separate stereotype in that way to fight back against i mean alex dupac has talked about that too with mpeon just people go to a mexican restaurant and they expect cheap tacos and so high cuisine in mexican food doesn't make sense to a lot of people whereas france doesn't really have that burden
0: yeah no france doesn't have that problem And um, it's sort of like this idea that they want to rally their own countries to have confidence in their own native cultures. And I think that's really awesome.
1: Season two of Chef's Table comes out on May 27th. You can watch it on Netflix. And David and his team, by the way, just won a James Beard Award for visual and technical excellence. Congrats to them. And that's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Thanks to my producer, Kristen Meinzer, and also to Laura Mayer, Henry Malofsky, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter handle is at Food52, or you can leave us a review on iTunes. For David Gelb, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.